Hey everyone, it's Heather. I know you're here to listen to the podcast, but did you know I also offer all kinds of online consulting services? Stuff like webinars, book studies, curriculum training and consultation, and even companion activities for podcast episodes to use for staff development. If you're interested, you can check out my website at www.thatearlychildhoodnerd.com or you can email me at heather at thatearlychildhoodnerd.com. Thanks for listening. Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that Early Childhood Nerd Podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. This is Heather Burnt Santi. I haven't recorded an episode in so long, and I'm so glad to be doing it now. Um, but also, I'm excited about uh, about this episode's topic. Um, Mike Huber is here to help out, and his cat. <laughs> is my cat. Video. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> There's Mike. And then we're going to be discussing an article titled, including autism, confronting inequitable practices in a toddler classroom. And we have the two authors of this article with us today, Amanda Fellner and Emmanuel uh, Fincham. Sorry, I couldn't read it off my screen. (laughs) So I'll just let each of you uh, introduce yourselves, tell everybody about yourselves a little bit, and then we'll uh, jump into our quote. Do I need to assign? Emmanuel, would you go first? Please? I'll start. <laughs> Hi, I'm Emmanuel Fincham. Um, you can also call me Emmy. That's if Amanda refers to me, that's what you'll hear from. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I have been an infant toddler teacher for about 15 years now. And um, most of my work has been with toddlers, but I'm back with infants currently. Um, and also a teacher educator. I've done some adjuncting here and there and looking to uh, shift into the field a bit more once, once the job finds me, I guess (laughs) I'm in that process now. Um, but yeah, I think just, um, while we technically haven't, we're not technically an inclusive site as you might like know in the field as like more full inclusion where, you know, you kind of have the services there. Mm -hmm. Um, we have always been open and wanting to include children of all abilities. And um, I think as you know, we might talk about from the article, we see how, how the tensions then come up when, when those kids become defined as something that doesn't fit our center um, by outside perspectives. So, um, so yeah, excited to talk about the work and, and hear what you guys are doing over there too. Yeah. Great, thank you. Um, Yeah, and I'm Amanda Fauner. I am, similarly to Emmy, was an infant toddler teacher for about 13 years, and um, mostly infants, and then a few years with toddlers, um, and recently transitioned into a lecturer position um, in the early childhood department at Teachers College, and I'm also the research coordinator of the Rita Gold Early Childhood Center, where um, I've done a lot of teaching, um, and, um, that's how I got to know Emmy. And so, um, looking forward to having this conversation tonight. Yeah. So before I jump into the quote, I wonder if, um, if Mike, you would do this too, if you and I could just talk about why this is sort of a topic yeah. that's interesting and that we wanted to talk more about. Sure. Um, and, and I'll go first because it's my show. Um, <laughs> 
<clears throat> and now I'll lose my voice after all that big talk. Um, so, so autism in general has, um, is not my, I don't have expertise in, in autism specifically. Um, I have a special education minor, um, which basically taught me about all the laws that led up to where we are now <laughs> and not really much about how to really, how to really do it. Um, but in a recent, uh, you know, just a, a I'm at, um, uh, I'm a program chair and, and instructor at a community college now. And before that, I was in a speech language uh, preschool clinic at Purdue University. And um, I didn't expect that autism would become a thing. I didn't know that that was something that speech language pathologists would, would provide you know, services for. So I learned a lot in those three years, and I want to keep learning more. Um, they did not do ABA at, at the preschool, but I learned more specifically what makes me sort of uncomfortable about ABA, but then also even, it seemed like even the really gentle um, therapeutic activity kinds of things for preschoolers, um, for autistic preschoolers uh, sounded fine when I read them. I'd be like, okay, that's, I can make that line up with my belief until I saw the eyes of the children <laughs> who were, who were being asked to change themselves for, for everybody else. So, um, so I'm just here to hopefully learn more. Um, and, and the article was really wonderful for me. Uh, so now you can go, Mike. Okay. Yeah. So for <laughs> me, um, well, I have an autistic, uh, teenager, so partly I got interested, you know, just as a parent, and then I also work with trans youth and there's a huge correlation of trans, especially non-binary um, people and autism. So we have so many sort of, you know, neuroqueer teenagers and er young adults. And so I've been more and more involved in that community. And really what I really appreciate is the language around autism in the same way. So I, I do tend to use, I guess I call it language of the civil rights movement, right? So we're talking about assimilation um, when I think of ABA and things like that versus, you know, having autism as an identity and, you know, how, you know, the, a way of being that mm -hmm. is just as valid as any other way of being. And so that's been my main, and then with that, I do work at a, a center that is, um, inclusion and, uh, you know, with, with the name, I guess. And, uh, <laughs> but we also have uh, speech therapy OT like on site that, you know, there are people who come from outside, but also kids who will be in the class and work with therapists, but it's floor time is the, um, approach we use. And it's, uh, we're becoming accredited as a, or certified as an, a floor time training center. So it's still kind of interesting because we're all sort of, I guess, what we refer to as regulation-based, not compliance-based. Um, and so it's interesting to see because it's still like still kind of wonders a little bit about mm -hmm. the autism day treatment of some of it. Um, but also it feels like a place where it's open to talk about and, and things too of like um, we're hoping, we're trying to get funding to sort of create a lab school that's based on this more play-based inclusion. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a few years out and I don't know if I'm allowed to actually say that. Yeah. Well, it's too late because I don't edit. But, you know, I didn't say where <laughs> I work, so I didn't even say what city I'm in. So there you go. Um, 
but yeah, so I've been really interested in the book <clears> I'm working on is really kind of looking at kind of a cultural, like the rights of children to be part of um, uh, the community mm-hmm. too. And I, I noticed we both have some of the same references <laughs> in, in your, your book and their article book. It's awesome. like, didn't, hadn't read your article um, mm-hmm. until now I'm like in the second draft now. He's and covering his ass. He, he stole I'm co- all well, your I'm just saying there's going to be some quotes in here now. Like this, this has already <laughs> been added to my reference list. And um, I think there's going to be a little bit about, uh, what was his name? Antonio mm-hmm. um, or, or something in there. I know for sure um, there's some name. There's good language in here that I'm going to be using in my book. So full disclosure. <laughs> <laughs> you can work out details later. Off the yeah, well, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. It'll um, come so- back around eventually. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so here's the quote, and you cover so much in the article that this quote doesn't sum up the article, but it's what I felt like was a good starting point for, for you two to maybe um, expand, and then we'll see where we go. But so in your article, you say, um, Ferry and Bacon state that disability, like other aspects of diversity, must be embraced as an essential aspect of what it means to be human and what it means to live in a community unquote for a minute. Honestly, that made me tear up a little bit when I was <laughs> when I was reading it again this afternoon. Okay, continuing with the quote. By honoring this diversity, we can move beyond notions of normality slash abnormality and think about the ways that disability is another way of being in the world. Rather than seeing children with ASD as needing to be fixed, disability theorists view the goal of education to be to honor different ways of learning and being in the world in ways that ensure equal access and active participation. And, uh, you know, like I said, you go all kinds of smart places in the article, but I felt like that really was maybe a good starting point to, to let you guys talk about it a little bit. And then, um, Mike and I can join in if we have questions. (laughs) So now I just want to invite you to, you know, to respond to that quote specifically or, or talk about your process or, or what's in the article or what you hope, uh, folks do with it. Yeah, um, I can jump in. Uh, yeah, I think like um, bringing sort of that that very overarching idea quote back to my mind um, made me think back to sort of where we started with this work and how we got to it to begin with. And it actually, I think a lot of the questions that we were starting to raise as teachers came out of um, like a, a, another study that we were participants in that was more focused on children's rights in the classroom and looking at sort of using like a rights-based approach just from toddlers in general. And Mm -hmm. um, I guess it started off as like just looking at kids who were transitioning into the room and, um, and it became, you know, clear very fast how much Antonio sort of stood out from the group. in more ways than one. And, you know, so we, you know, I think as, as, as we started to shift our, our brains and our gaze towards this sort of child's rights idea, um, it really opened up so many more questions than, you know, and this wasn't, this wasn't early in our work as teachers or teachers together. Like we, this was, this was later in our careers that we just started raising these questions. And, Um, But I think it it took that shift in the gaze to be able to see, like, all these things we told ourselves was what we were supposed to do as teachers to support children in their development and, like, you know, 
get kids prepared and help them, you know, be included by being more like the normal child, quote unquote, you know, um, you know, that's what we were taught. That's what we came to know. And, and just when you start to think about it as like, but what is that doing to this child's like rights to be a child, like right to play, right to a childhood. Um, you know, I think that's really where we were able to start bringing these deeper questions and, and see it in a whole new light. So. And that, that idea of inclusion versus, and this is not your phrasing, but what I thought of was as sort of an opposite or sort of the, the, the way I've seen it happen more often is tolerate, tolerated. Like we will call ourselves inclusion because that might give us some funding or that would, is a good marketing tool, or we, we, re- we believe in the mission maybe even, but what, what it really ends up looking like is we'll tolerate you as long as we can tell you're trying to be like us. And that's, um. A difficult thing for most humans to do, but especially yeah. toddlers. And it sounds a lot children. like racial uh, it, inclusion too, sure doesn't does. it? Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I always I talk about inclusion as inclusion often means you're you're allowed in the room, mm-hmm. um, and that's about it. And, and there's always like, that as long as when we're. And I think it's inclusion disability. versus including. You know, it's not like they talk about including children. It's like, yeah, um, it's just sort of yep. Come on in. Just yeah. act like us. Yeah. We jumped in before you got to talk, Amanda. Yes, sorry. No, great. I appreciate. <laughs> I love the conversation already. Um, no, I I think just building off what Emmy said and what you know you both are also speaking about is just this idea that I think Emmy and I, well, particularly myself, but I think Emmy as well. Not to speak too much for you, but I um, really struggled with this idea of what behaviors were allowed in our classroom right and and what was permitted and what and and what where would we intervene sort of and what was that line you know and and i think you know in the article we talk about lunchtime as being like the main point of like where we said okay this is one moment where antonio is going to join the group and it gave us so much like we talked about this for weeks, months, and years, you know, we still talk about this moment, these moments of encouraging him, forcing him to join the group and be a part of the group at the, at the table and how we thought in many ways we were doing something good. You know, we Mm -hmm. were helping him to eat. We were helping him to be part of the community. We were helping him to ask for things that he needed And yet this tension it caused in ourselves and in the way we saw him responding to that, Mm -hmm. um, it's something I still question, you know, whether, you know, how do you include and without, how do you include without sort of diminishing who someone is and diminishing someone's right to say, I don't want to be here. And I don't want to do it this way. Yeah. I remember very early on at the, um, the speech and language preschool. Um, so I was the early childhood specialist and then there was a speech language pathologist who worked with us. And, um, honestly, I love the pro you know, I love the program. I loved my time there. I learned so much, but in those first couple of months, the SLP and I were both brand new after sort of 20 years of someone being in the roles before us. And we each came in all excited about how we were going to change it up and do our thing. And um, I remember a conversation where um, I was really arguing in favor of more free play. <laughs> and, um, and she came at it from her perspective that there needs to be 
some guidance for these children who are getting speech and language therapy from us. And um, I remember she said, I just don't feel like you're supportive of special education. And, and I said something like, well, I, I guess I'm thinking about how um, a label suddenly makes us forget everything else we know about child development and how children learn and what they need because they have this different label. Um, and we focus so much on the change that we see needs to happen because of that label. And it was a, it was a hard first six months, probably of us navigating that together. Um, yeah, I, I was going to ask um, either Amanda or Emmy, you know, just because you do use the term medical model yeah. of disability. And I think that's a really important thing because it, to me, what I heard was, you know, Heather came at it from a social model and the speech language pathologist came at a medical model, but like what you use the term a lot in the article. So like, can you talk about what you, how you see that, those terms or how the, the concepts, whatever. Yeah. I'll just, I highlighted something about that. So I'll read that and maybe that'll be a, a, a jog for everyone. But decisions about types of treatment are often ensconced in a medical discourse that emphasizes abnormality and points towards notions of treatments and cures. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I think it points to the issues in the field and your example, your story, Heather, was just a perfect <laughs> exemplar of that where it it is, you know, I think like, the general education side and the special education side have been just fundamentally constructed from completely different knowledge bases. Mm. And even though there's overlap, like you still have like special education departments, like in early childhood school, like schools of education, they're completely separate. Mm -hmm. And there's very little, even if people are getting certified in both, which a lot of early childhood programs are doing now, there's, there's not a lot of interaction between the two schools, right? Um, because they're just completely different fields and that's how they've been distinguished. And um, I think for me, like thinking about the medical model, um, I mean, the fact that the diagnosis of autism, like you have to go into the DSM four or five or whatever one now um, to, to see, like, to understand, you know, like, and I feel like when you're looking at special ed, like that's where most kids' diagnoses are housed. Like it's, you have this book of problems mm -hmm. and like <laughs> they are, it's medicalized and it's institutionalized and, and that's how, you know, how, what you fit, where you fit in, you know, um, when it's not in the regular world or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, you know, in my own practice, I've, I've experienced that in, um, my student teaching, I, I did one semester in a therapeutic um, preschool that was housed in a hospital. And I was like, these kids didn't get to play. Like they didn't get to play. Mm -hmm. They did five hours a day of intervention, 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 intervention. A lot of them were on a bus for up to two to three hours a day back and forth, like to get to this preschool. And, you know, that was their life. And it, mm -hmm. you know, it, it wasn't, you know, from a sociocultural approach at all, <laughs> you know, the way that they were looked at, it was very much like, we need to fix these children and mm -hmm. what can we do to fix them? And, um, and the five minutes of play that they got every day was for the teachers to, you know, rearrange everything and get the next, you know, treatment what was the time ready filler? for them. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Mike's cat's back. <laughs> yeah. I was hoping, and I, um, maybe I'll, I'll just, say this. And, and again, uh, 
see who says something, but um, uh, the, the discussion in the article about play and autistic children um, who are told that the ways they want to play are wrong um, has of course also never sat very well with me since I've been thinking about this. So, um, so would you, you, and you address it in the article. So would you talk a little bit about, um, what your, what your experience is with that and what you've tried, what you learned, what you want us all to know? (laughs) Another big point is the we had so many discussions about this, Debbie and I did, and videotapes, and we're like, what does this mean? <laughs> um, you know, just, I think that there were so many things that we, we thought were interesting in, in Antonio's play, mm-hmm. and just cool, you know, and we were like, oh, this, you know, he's doing this with, with the, you know, the symmetry, and this is like really impressive, and, you know, the, the, his ability to just pick up that symmetry in the world and just see it in front of him and put it there. And we were like, this is amazing. And then we start Googling and then it's like, <laughs> oh wait, maybe this is not so great, you know? And so then we're like, should we stop this? You know? And, and then we're like, but then we have this tension again of mm-hmm. well, why can't we just let him play? Right. Uh, and anytime we would try and intervene and try to get him to play in ways that looked more, developmentally typical or appropriate for the play category in the play category (laughs) right yeah you know um he would just leave and it would end immediately Mm -hmm. um and I think that that right there was just an an important piece of our learning Mm -hmm. about maybe it's time to take a step back again um and let him be who he is and maybe that's okay Mm -hmm. Um, yeah I was oh go ahead I was just looking back through the article at the specific um, thing you were watching Antonio do the ABC puzzle. Um, uh, And so it was a big puzzle. The point of it is to put the alphabet letters in the right spot in the puzzle, right? I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. Um, He purposefully picked the X, the M, the W, um, dropped the letters on the floor and started to place the letters down and then do little shifts with the letters and um, uh, until it's just right, turned it 90 degrees to the left so the bottom fit up against the side of the X. He did the same thing with the W, fitting it to the right side of the X and marrying the M. So I can, I, I know people who would look at that and be like, there's something wrong with this kid. We got to get some special services in here. But then you say, when I saw, when I first saw Antonio do this with the letters, I found it fascinating. What a keen visual sense, what a creative way to use a lot, utilize the relationship of letter, of letter shapes. Um, and I just thought that's, it's, you know, something else you say in the article is the way we think about these children is going to determine the kinds of supports we think they need. And so if you're curious and interested in that play, you're going to let them do it because you want to learn more about it yourself. But if your only mindset is this isn't normal and I need to teach him to be a normal player, then you're going to have a completely different approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, and that's where like a lot, like this, this piece has really put me like sort of on a, on a like diving board into like <laughs> the pool of autistic play. Uh-huh. Um, and, and I, I'm, I'm working on some writing now that's going back um, to my own teaching experiences with other children, including Antonio. Um, but like re-looking at their play 
and and thing and behaviors that I didn't necessarily define as play when I worked with them and sort of re-theorizing that. And, and I hope to do more work around that in the future. Yeah. Um, but I think like you said, it's like until that day, I don't know that we would have started thinking, you know, it's like we, you know, because you're told the therapist come in you're like, oh, like he's stimming. Like we have to stop that. Like it's stimming, right? No, it's play, <laughs> like, you know? And, and I think like when you are prepared, like I was prepared as a special educator, like I did a dual program and I was taught all about stimming and I was taught about, you know, like how it just becomes like a hindrance to their learning and this and that. And I was never taught that this is how some children play. Mm-hmm. And I was never taught to look at it as play. Um, and I think that's really a, a space where we can help yeah. shift the gaze of it. And, um, and I think it's, you know, it goes back to then the medical model comes into your classroom when the therapists start coming into work and, and they told, tell you, and they tell the parents that whenever you see him doing this, make him stop, like intervene. And you're like, but why, right. <laughs> you know, and it feels un- unethical. <laughs> Go ahead, Mike. Well, I was going to say, it seems like it's that same ableist notion. I feel like that, like with deaf children, where for the longest time it was like, well, they need to lip read because they need to be able to communicate like us, Mm -hmm. like us, uh, the hearing community. But instead of, oh, signing is also just as valid. Mm -hmm. And if anything, it's um, more... um, well, it's less stressful for the child. They can communicate with other people in their community. The hearing community can learn, mm-hmm. you know, but like the same idea that like, oh, that's not play and we have to stop it versus, um, you know, just like allowing it and seeing it. Uh, I mean, I guess the way Emmy was saying it, that it's a valid form of play, but it is different, you know, mm-hmm. but there is an ableist notion mm-hmm. of, but it's not the right way to play because it's not the way whatever percentage mm-hmm. of people do it. Yeah. Um, so it, it just reminded me of a toddler last year who, um, and I don't know about the diagnosis and um, for my role, I don't care, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> he would go around, we had this outdoor classroom, he would go around and look for these little tiny pebbles, you know, like, I don't know, they couldn't have been more than two millimeters, you know, like long, like just these tiny little things. And he would go around like, oh, you know, and he'd bend down and pick it up. I followed him around with the camera for like 10 minutes. It's, and what he would do is he'd do this for five, 10 minutes. And then he'd go to this one teacher who was, she'd kind of be sitting there with these other kids, like just one of those dream toddler teachers, you know, and he'd just like, and she, as he's walking towards, she's like, what do you have for me this time? And she holds out her hands and you just like put the tiniest things like, Oh, that one's sort of reddish. And this one, and like, he would just sort of smile. And then he'd go back for another like 10 minutes. It was just, um, you know, it was just so cool to see how, much she just valued like his way of doing things you know their toddlers are I can't remember offhand that when I was watching that time but we're doing toddler other toddler things but I just loved the way she like was so just present for him and he was so excited to show her the rocks Mm-hmm. which is, um, I just read recently, one of the love languages of the neurodivergent. <laughs> I found this rock and love thought it. you'd like it. Yes. <laughs> nice. I love getting rocks. I, I would be a perfect match <laughs> for whoever had that love language. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, 
Oh, it seemed like I had a question that has disappeared. Guess I better make up a new one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can jump off a oh, please mic with real quick too. Yeah. Um, because that just reminded me, you know, how like this work has also really, I think, jump started um like well, my thinking particularly, and I think Amanda's too, of you know, it it makes us think not just about what we're doing with children who may be diagnosed with something, but just all children and, and how, you know, how like the interventionist role is just so such a big part of like the teacher Mm -hmm. construct, like the constructed teacher. Right. And like, if we're not intervening, like, what are we doing? You know, exactly. like who's how are people going to judge our teaching if they don't see us like yeah. teaching them something, you know? Um, and so I, you know, it's, it's really, you know, opened up that, that conversation for us beyond disability and just, you know, just, just how stifling, you know, and, and interruptive, mm-hmm. like our work as teachers can be to children yeah. a lot of the time, Which, um, oh. even in a play-based, very progressive was- classroom, you know? <laughs> yeah. But a lot of, a lot of classrooms aren't play-based. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so if we think about a classroom that already for their, you know, what they call their typically developing children, um, already don't value play and have that interventionalist mindset as teachers, then of course, they're not going to be able to look at autistic play differently. Like, like you suggest, mm-hmm. um, because they already are sort of, um, biased against, against that kind of play. Um, but that, that's the next part I wanted to get to in the article. Not exactly that, but you did, you do ask how were these practices constituting their idea of who Antonio was talking about the other children. Um, and, and the idea that these things that we're doing to try and make Antonio more like other children are actually stigmatizing him maybe with those other children and doing more damage, even if that's a good goal to have that wouldn't be the way to achieve it. Mike, you're nodding effusively. Well, I, um, so I think it was two weeks ago, I was in a classroom for a while and there's this one child, um, non-speaking autistic who likes to sort of just, he, he always wants, um, like contact pressure, you know, it's like always kind of doing things. And so we were in the classroom and he climbed up on a shelf and, you know, those preschool shelves. So two feet off the ground, maybe. But so his whole body was on the shelf vertically or no, horizontally. It's like his belly, you know, legs were on the shelf. And it's like, oh, and then he's playing. And all of a sudden it's like, he's not needing the like pressure of like pushing other kids or anything. He's got it. And then he was, there were these action figures like superheroes and he would have one in his hand. And he would, there, I put another one on the shelf to see what he'd do. And he knocked it off and smiled. So I put it back in the shelf. He knocked it off. And this uh, neurotypical child came over and just said, oh, you should give him more of a challenge. And all I said was um, really influenced by the uh, book, you know, what makes a difference, the including all children or whatever. Uh, in- Anyways, I'll look up the title <laughs> later. But um, I was like, oh, well, he likes he I think he's really liking watching how it's flying through the air. And so the girl's watching and you know, we do it again. It's like, Oh, he's really good at that. <laughs> get me the rest of the basket. Let's get more of these fake, you know, superheroes. And so then she did it for like 15 minutes. She would just put <laughs> the things on and he would whack them off. And I, you know, it was just that thing of, 
I think the teachers who were in there like hadn't tried to value his play. It was more like, well, he's at least not interrupting anyone. And I always try to find out how do I get a child connected with another child if, you know, without like forcing it, but if that's what they want. Yeah. <laughs> building bridges is uh-huh. like sort of um, the way I refer to it. And so just explaining it to this other, you know, five-year-old, she said, Oh, okay. And suddenly they were playing together in this way that, you know, she was really into it. So um, it just, when you were talking, it just reminded me of that particular um, instance. Cause mm-hmm. like, the teacher has to value it first. Usually sometimes kids will figure it out without the teacher, but you know, that some kids need a little bit of an explanation, you know, like, Oh, this is the way he says, hi, this is the way he, whatever, you know, we had another a, a child who needed everyone to say hello before yeah. he walked through the door. Yeah. And the, at first the teachers explained it, but within a week, the kids, Oh, he's here. Let's come over again. They'd all go over and <laughs> like, I love that. Each say hi and then he'd walk in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but it's like that, but you do, you know, the teacher has that role. First, of course, they do have to value it themselves, but then helping other kids value play that might be different than theirs. Mm-hmm. We got to let the guests, the company talk for a while now because we just yeah, took yeah, a lot of time. That was, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, that was a longer story than I meant. Yeah, I mean, I think we had those conversations a lot with the kids and with each other and um, with the therapists that were in the classroom. Um, You know, I have a vivid memory of one of our kids who was neurotypical. Mm -hmm. um, And he was like, you know, why does Antonio always, you know, you know, run across the room at you? And I was like, well, it's just what he likes to do, you know, <laughs> you know? or like he'd be, I'd ask like, why does he talk like that? You know, mm-hmm. and he had a very scripted speech. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I was like, well, that's just, you know, Antonio likes to talk like this. He really likes to watch these shows. And we would bring that into the classroom. I mean, and I watched so many great YouTube videos. <laughs> Sometimes it's the way to understand, you know, what they're trying to communicate to us and it helps the relationship and why they have a British accent. Sometimes <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have accents, but we had kids who always went on holiday because they watched Peppa Pig. So they were always going on holiday yeah. instead of vacation. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I think for us, it was um, this idea of building community was really important <clears throat> and of, trying to find ways to have the kids connect in meaningful ways, um, whether that just be playing with similar materials or being nearby, um, of trying to find ways to not exclude Antonio in our classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that got really hard when <laughs> some of his therapists then wanted to pull him out. And this idea of working with him in the classroom in a social setting was like, uh, very unusual to them mm-hmm. um, and for us he was he was receiving like four hours a day some days of, of therapy during our class day and we we were just you know you can't take him out for four hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> um, to sit right. in the kitchen but with a therapist by himself you know, right you know, and also like, the other children seeing that and they you know then that's part of that stigma there's something different about Ant- Antonio mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, if you want to build on that. I yeah. I mean, I was just going to add to not to like harp on therapists, but we, I, no. with, with this, with, with this particular child, 
um, in, in particular, like we, we just had some, a lot of mismatches and it was, it was unfortunate for his experience and ours, um, where, you know, in the past we'd worked with war, but, um, but I think, I'm not sure if we get into it in the article, but, um, Mike, you said that your school, um, runs a floor time approach, which we were lucky enough to like in the past work with more floor time therapists, but that's been just harder and harder to acquire in the system and, um, and to get the city to cover it mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Yeah. And, Cause it, and it's like, once you get that full diagnosis of autism, um, it really limits your options of what they're willing to give you. Um, especially if your insurance only wants yeah. to pay for ABA then it's really hard to get some of these other things in. Yeah. 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 I'm interested. I don't, I don't know. Cause okay. Heather, let me know what would the listeners be more interested in? Partly I'm interested in, cause mostly the article you are talking about where you ran up against the uh, therapists where it wasn't working, but I'm curious about what you were saying, Amanda, about the things that how you connected them or what, things either Mm -hmm. your interaction with Antonio or interactions with other kids if you had some other examples because I loved like the drumming um I don't remember the the name used for the other kid but like uh where the human yay you know (laughs) but I'd love to hear other stories because I do think like because the other thing is we could go about why do cities or insurance tend to fund those things and that's a whole other episode I think yeah but I do want to make it clear we're not here to bash therapists it's like every other field there are some who um maybe cling to older ideas and there are some who are um you know really keeping currents and um yeah. it, and, but i think we, but we come from different places i guess is where i want to end yeah. that with or the early childhood yeah. educators and the therapists come from different places yeah. and um, have different goals and different trainings so yeah. um and they're also like the one therapist we work with we really learned how how they are so subjected to mm-hmm. their supervisors and yes. what their supervisors and expect their them to do because their, yeah, because yeah. she, I mean, she was great with him and like, we, we worked well together, but it was like, we should have a couple of days and be like, okay, we're playing and we're doing this and everything's great. And that's like, oh, I have to do all this stuff. Cause they're going to come and, yeah. and check that. And it was like, but she didn't believe in it, you know, and I was like, oh, like the tensions that she was going through. Yeah. Like, I wish we were still in touch and could like yeah. <laughs> have this conversation. That would be a whole, a too. good conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I'm up for more examples. If there's more examples, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think listeners would like that. Yeah. Or of other kids too. I mean, I don't know how long yeah. ago Antonio was. Cause yeah. Yeah. So I have one in mind, but it, it might be one you're thinking of Amanda. Cause it was oh, you go ahead. a video you caught Count to three and start your stories and see if they're the same. <laughs> <laughs> Are you talking about the basket? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to talk about that? It's okay, you go for it. Okay. Um, yeah, I think generally with um with Antonio, like we were just so fascinated with the ways he was like engaging with his peers. And I think we also luckily had a group of very for lack of a better word, like timid children <laughs> in that year, um, who were all sort of like okay, like, this is okay, I guess. I don't know. Is somebody going to help me? You know, and (laughs) like very sweet, but Mm -hmm. not your your sort of typical toddler bunch um, as a whole. Um, Yeah. But, uh, but I was, you know, Antonio kind of came in like bold in a China strap some days and would barrel into us needing that sort of 
you know, input mm-hmm. and would occasionally barrel into his peers. Um, and, you know, some of them sort of accepted it and some didn't. And, and I think, you know, the shift that we made um, was rather than intervening for what we perceived to be the safety of the other child or the comfort of the other child was like intervening in a way that sort of valued what Antonio was doing and try to help the other child understand mm-hmm. like the the meaning the possible meaning behind the behavior that it wasn't that he's trying to hurt you know but like oh and like making it into a game somehow like jumping in or even joining in and making it a three-way thing between like building bridges like Mike was talking about um you know just just inserting ourselves into that peer relationship as it was developing um rather than it being something that was like this is just an unwanted behavior and we're going to stop it. Um, and so one specific <laughs> incidence that we remember because we had a video of it, we watched it so many times over and over, like, what, what is he doing? What is he thinking? You know? And, uh, I think it was like, now it's been a while, so I can't remember exactly, but you know, he had like, like a basket that we had balls in or something that he had emptied out and kept like putting it on like another child's head. Oh, and it was like, okay, fun, peekaboo, right? And kept going. And then eventually became like a little harder. We pushed out a little harder. <laughs> and like, finally, like the girl just kind of melted under the basket, <laughs> you know, um, but was never, you know, you could tell she was uncomfortable, but mm-hmm. never like over the edge upset. And, you know, I, and I think it, in those moments, just trying to, to hype the play of it as a teacher and like to, to hype the funness of it um, in a way that, is helping the other child like understand like this isn't a scary thing for me this can be a fun thing for me mm-hmm. um and i think you know that that could happen in any any situation um with bodies coming together as they do in classrooms um yeah but well, what you're I'm doing just there, enjoying visualizing it all <laughs> it was great <laughs> but also i just want to mention like what you're doing there because that medical model right is just looking at the one child and looking for what they don't do mm-hmm. And what you're talking about is looking at both kids in this case. Mm-hmm. And like I've been in my book, I'm trying to, I don't know if scaffolding is the right word, but thinking of rethinking scaffolding that's not just building up, but like helping the two children figure out where they need to go so that they can bridge, you know? Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, that sounds like exactly what you did. Like it's not just focusing on one child, you're focusing on the social. <clears throat> and that yeah. requires talking to both kids in different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, and I think I with that imagery, that. just like, like breaking it up the scaffolding so that it's, it's not even like a linear path. Right, right, I, know. <laughs> you know, it's more like this. I can't I wait for I this like video. To leave around. Around. <laughs> it's like, you know, I don't want to make it sound like one thing is lower than the other either, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. but, um, but I do think that idea of forgetting about this, like, cause that's kind of a medical model too, in a way, mm-hmm. what is the kid not doing? Let's scaffold to get them to that point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, even though it's not a diagnosis in that case, but yeah. And it's even, you know, like us having to reshape our ideas around like, like thinking of that scaffolding, like what, what are those peer relationship building behaviors we're looking for and what else might they look like, you know, with a, with a child like Antonio. I was just going to say like another way that like, I think we attempted to bring his play into the group so that um, 
you know, so that the kids saw his play is also valued, Mm -hmm. um, was that we would bring in the songs, the videos that he watched the, the, we, and we would play, um, sort of the YouTube videos and just the sound of them. And he would act them out. And then (laughs) all the kids would get in and start acting them out. And we would have this whole like toddler classroom acting out these like videos that like we they were so just not typical like toddler videos that like I mean I don't know I I've never heard of them before mm-hmm. um there were like these cartoons that it just weren't like mainstream at the mm-hmm. time um but then the whole toddler room got a, became a part of it right and those songs became a part of our classroom culture and it was because he brought them in mm-hmm. and I think that that was like I mean that was a very small thing but it was a way that we but it was a big made, thing <laughs> small and yet big. yeah <laughs> but, but it was our way of like attempting to bring his interest and in what he valued really into our classroom community yeah. um and so and I think the kids really love that yeah also, and it's a little I bit still, oh no I still remember him like skiing on brooms in our classroom <laughs> do you remember that because <laughs> it was because that was in his video <laughs> And then all the kids suddenly wanted to ski. So we had a whole toddler classroom nice. of skis, like toddlers on brooms. And it was just, <laughs> I don't know, it was lovely. I want to play. <laughs> um, but that's a totally different way because one of the responses I see or one of the techniques or strategies, whatever you want to call it, that I see is, well, find out what they're interested in. And then that's what you use to modify their behavior instead of find out what they're interested in so that we can join him in it so he can share it with us. But that's not how it usually goes, I don't think. <clears throat> yeah. And I think that's like, I mean, I think we wrote about this, but <laughs> in that, I don't know, because now it's like I've written, I write about this in other places. Uh-huh. Um, but just sort of the the notion of like when you have, you know, an emergent curriculum style, which we stand by, you know, I think the question of like emergent for who comes mm, up and then, yes. and that was those were, those were the answers we were trying to, to, to find out with bringing this stuff in for him. Like how, how does his voice come into our curriculum in that way when it's not as easy to pick up on it as we have in all these years. And yeah. um, another quick example, this from another child that I, I worked with years and years ago um, who uh, spun plates on the table, like like uh-huh. quarters, but like oh, big yeah. plastic plates. We had a spinner. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, that was like textbook stimming, if you will. Yeah. And um, one of those behaviors we were told to stop. Mm-hmm. But, you know, even if you stopped it, he would find something else. We took out all the plates. He found something else, you mm-hmm. know, like you couldn't. It was his play. That's what he wanted to do. Right. And it was like with me and another co-teacher, like at one point, just realizing that if we just kind of got in with him, and started looking at it and started thinking about like, why is this interesting to him? And, and like, when you watch a plate spin, it's pretty cool. Yeah. And so then we're like, let me see if I could do it. And like, we couldn't (laughs) as well as he could, but the fact that once we started doing it as teachers, other kids started doing it. And then it became like, there was this whole, like the noise project approach, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. on like plate spinning, which would not be something you would typically be doing in an emergent curriculum, Um, you know, and, and it had nothing to do with playing in the kitchen or the typical Mm -hmm. storylines. It just became about like exploring spinning. Um, 
Yeah. And which is, yeah. I think, a, a valid pursuit fits into one of the schemas, schema play I theory. I was wondering when sure. schema was going to come up. <laughs> I was waiting for it. Yep. Um, I'm reading a lot about schema play right now, so it's all in there rattling around. Um, but I had something else I was going to say. Oh, just the, this idea of you letting him do the spin and not only allowing him to do it, but joining in yourself and sending that message that I'm curious about what you're doing here. Um, so much more what we probably want to put into a child's day than the sort of psychic load we create for them when we send them, when we tell them all day long that what your body is telling you, you need is wrong and you need to stop doing it. And the adults who are important to you will be very displeased if you, if you don't change what you're doing, instead of just acknowledging that this is who you are and I don't understand it, but I'm going to try and other, other children joining in. And, um, I just, it just sounds like, even though I hate the sound of plate spinning, Sounds like a magical moment in a toddler classroom for me. <laughs> and I, I'd like to point out too, um, just because I, I mo talk more with um, autistic, you know, early uh, young adults, early twenties, um, teenagers too. But I've <clears> never <throat> heard anyone talk about when they were told to mask or learned how to mask their stimming and, and behaviors as being a positive thing, mm -hmm. like not one person. But what I do hear them talk about is remembering the people like what you did there, right? That, um, and granted most of the autistic people I know are speaking um, and, you know, but so I, you know, do understand. <laughs> but um, <laughs> able to but my you. point being that more that just what you're doing is meaningful. And I know Amanda, you talked about one of the things as being a small thing, the, the bringing in the videos and stuff. But I, when I talk to, you know, like people who are, you know, later on where they can reflect those, they'll remember things from 15 years ago, 20 years ago, because it was the person that let them be who they are, mm -hmm. you know? So, um, you know, so while they are small things in some ways, they're also really big things. So I just want you to, you know, <laughs> I'm sure you think about it too, but yeah. You know. Anyone else who's listening, who you go, who, who doesn't celebrate those small moments as big things, we're, yeah, we're yeah. giving you permission now. <laughs> but also that, like the masking thing, you know, um, of like not stimming. Like, why is that? I don't know. I don't understand why we're uh, neurotypical people are so concerned about it. Because it makes us uncomfortable, Mike. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we don't understand it and some of that is like like a i guess a good intentioned uncomfortable like we're afraid that the child's going to be you know stigmatized or or you know no one's going to want to play with them or you know i've had some who don't want their family extended family to know that their child has this diagnosis so they're working really hard to get all those signs um out of out of their um habits or whatever but if what it comes down to is this is a child <laughs> who needs us um, to be bigger and better than we have been, I think, for, for most autistic children. Um, and, and at least speaking, autistic people can also advocate for themselves if they learn yeah. to not. My, my mm -hmm. child got front row tickets to rent once and just turned to the people next to them and said, so just so you know, I'm autistic. I stim when I'm excited. I'm going to be really excited. Aww. Don't don't call for an usher. I'm not having a medical <laughs> emergency. 
And my yeah. child's knuckles were bruised because they were just like, you know, the whole time. And even afterwards, I heard from one of the actors talking about how they were getting so much emotion from the reaction. They oh. couldn't quite tell what my child was doing, but it was like, they could tell it was excitement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and almost you know, my oh. child had to say that first, right? Because otherwise the people probably would have called. It would have been hard. Yeah. Every IEP I've ever seen for a child, preschool age child with a disability has something about advocating for themselves. And then we tell them all day what they shouldn't do and what they need to do to please us. And that is one thing that really bothers me uh, because the advocacy is so important as you just uh, ex- gave us an example of. Um, so we're, we're close to an hour. This has been fun. Um, I hope you guys think it was fun. Mike and I are having a good time. <laughs> okay. No pressure, but please tell me this no. was fun for you. <laughs> it was great. Um, okay good so is there anything that either of you really wanted to talk about or that we haven't that you wanted to say this is always my wind down but then it gets us going again is why mike's (laughs) laughing i think um but i just if you know if there's something really that was central to you coming on this is your chance and if not okay there's like one okay (laughs) (laughs) and I'll try and be very quick I think one of the aspects of our um, early childhood center was that we were a teacher training site and so we had a lot of student teachers in the room as we were trying to figure all of this out Um, and I think that there's a certain responsibility we have in training future teachers to have these conversations with them around even the discomfort we were having Mm -hmm. to be really open and honest about that and the complexity of the situation that was in front of us and how teaching isn't so neat and tidy as it seems in a teacher training program. (laughs) And you're gonna be hit with these things that make you uncomfortable. And you have to think about how you're going to respond Mm -hmm. and that lives with you. Mm -hmm. Um, And the the choices I made in those moments still live with me. um, And I still talk about them with my students. And I think it's important that, um, that we remember that as teacher trainers, it's also a really critical piece of mm-hmm. thinking about um, our own practice. Yeah. I think it's hard for some people who are not in the habit of being reflective, just generally to be told, we want you to be a reflective teacher. We want you to think about your practice, but when they hear examples, like you have both shared about your own sort of evolution and thinking and the way you reflected on what you were seeing, it becomes a little bit more real. So I, I think you're right. I agree with that hundred percent. Yeah. And what it does too is like, there's going to be, well, one autism looks different every time, but even you'll have other kids that have something different and like the, the reflective piece, you're always going to be open to, oh, everything I used to do, maybe that doesn't make sense for this mm-hmm. child or this class or whatever. So that, you know, that, that's, I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you both for being on. This was great. Um, the article is open access, so I'm happy that the readers will be or listeners will be able to find it easily. Sometimes that's a challenge when we do article conversations. Um, so thank you for that too. If you had anything to do with that, um, and, and last thing to Bank Street, Street. Yeah. <laughs> Bank Street, yeah. yeah. Are we wearing the same nail polish, Mike? It looks like maybe. We're oh, um, oh I got them from Micah. Yeah, Color Street nail strips, everyone. <laughs> Um, okay. Well, thank you again, both for being here. Thank you, Mike. Um, this has been another episode of that early childhood nerd, and I hope you'll come back again for the next episode. Goodbye. And that's the show. Now go get your nerd on. Bye.
Early Learning Upstairs Studio Production. Oh.